Commencing countdown. Three, two, one. This is the Contracting Experience. Connecting government contracting professionals to the world around them through conversations with acquisition influencers, insights into evolving hot topics, and sharing lessons learned from the field. In this episode, we sit down with Captain Alicia Bingley, Heather Carino, and Captain Alexandra Bakuda, who are Air Force contracting professionals that have completed education with industry fellowships. Alicia, Heather, and Alexander share their experiences working with 8VC, SpaceX, and Intel Capital. They each discuss what they found impactful during their education with industry fellowships, as well as how contracting professionals can start applying their lessons learned today. Welcome, Captain Bingley, Captain Bakuda, and Heather Carino to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. Happy to be here. Thank you so much. Grateful Happy to, to have here. you guys. Thank you. Captain Bingley, let's start with you. You reached out to me to get the experiences of yourself and some of your fellow education with industry fellows out to the workforce. Why do you think it's so important to share your EWE experiences with the acquisition workforce? You know, I'm a, I'm a big believer in the, the knowledge is power, but only when shared kind of adage or that knowledge is like a candle, you know, that, that can light the way for a team and it shouldn't just be be held back for one person. And I, I learned a lot in my EWE experience, but most importantly, I know a lot of the EWE, EWE fellows, my fellow EWE, EWE teammates, if you will, um, learned a lot too. I benefited from their shared knowledge and, and so I hope others can too. That's really basically it. <laughs> Great. Well, you each had different experiences with different industry partners. Please tell the listeners what company you worked with and what your primary responsibilities were. And Captain Bakuda, we'll start with you and then go to Heather and then Captain Bingley. Yeah. So my EWI experience with, with Intel Capital, which is, a, which is a corporate venture capital division of Intel Corporation. Intel Capital has been around for, uh, for about 30 years. With the, within this division, there are several teams of investors, managing directors, and portfolio development. I worked in the portfolio development team, which was tasked with finding ways to add value to about 250 plus portfolio companies in four domains, which are cloud devices, uh, frontier slash deep tech companies, and silicon. I was in charge of creating public uh, sector strategy that helped portfolio companies with existing government contracts finding, find ways to scale within the DoD and also introducing new companies to government contracting rules and ways of getting um, those companies their their first government contract. All right, Heather, what about you? Yes, I was placed with SpaceX for my EWE tour. So I was working as a member on their purchasing team at Cape Canaveral Space Force Station and Kennedy Space Center. And um, out of all the EWE fellows, I think my experience was probably most closely aligned to what we as contracting officers and specialists do on the day to day. So my role was very similar to that of as an, an Air Force contracting officer, just on the industry side with a very heavy focus on category management and strategic sourcing. Captain Bingley? 
Yeah, um, I also worked at a venture capital company, 8BC, out of Austin, Texas. My experience was a little different than Alex's because I focused more on the front end of venture capital investing, listening to pitches, advising the company on what I thought of different defense market, looking at the NDAA and trying to figure out where the defense is spending money and things like that. So more on the front end of the venture capital investment, um, as opposed to Alex being in portfolio management, but different experiences, but I think we both were able to learn from each other and, and the full life cycle of venture capital by having conversations with each other. So that was great. Great. Cause you guys, you know, you guys were in a fellowship at the same time. So you guys were able to meet, did you guys meet monthly to kind of discuss what was going on or how did that work? Yeah, it's, I'd say we met formally every month. We kind of had like a tag up that we would kind of talk about our shared experiences. Um, but informally, I think, I mean, we have the typical chat group with your with your coworkers going on, you know, mm-hmm. especially so when so when we have different issues or different experiences or different things we want to share with the group, we we definitely did that as well. So when we were preparing for this podcast, one of the big topics that came up was the SpaceX I2I project. So Heather, can you talk about what the I2I project is and how you think its concepts can help with what we do in Air Force acquisition? Yeah, absolutely. So Insight to Industry or I2I is essentially our capstone project. So it's it's a culmination of the, the biggest lessons learned that we've gotten from our time in industry and looking at ways that we can take those lessons learned back and apply them to the Air Force. So for my project, which is titled the Requirements Design Lab, I look at how we can take a powerful engineering algorithm that is used at SpaceX and apply that to our requirements development process. So this would happen in like a facilitated workshop environment where a third party would guide the acquisition team through an intensive overhaul of their requirements documents, you know, their statements of work or PWS or even their procedural packages. So I I think the SpaceX algorithm that I'm applying can be used in many different ways, especially within contracting and acquisitions. But For my project, I really looked at how we can focus on the requirements development process. So I I think in many ways, we've made a lot of advancements in in, streamlining acquisition planning and creating innovative source selection procedures. But I think there's a lot of area for opportunity in that requirements development process that maybe hasn't gotten as much focus as it could. Since requirements are the foundation for everything that follows in the acquisition process, I think it warrants quite a bit of focus. So the algorithm that I look at, it's a five-step process. There's a lot of information online. So if people are curious and want to know more about it, um, you can literally just Google SpaceX algorithm and all kinds of cool stuff will come up. But it's a five-step process. It's essentially a tool for critical thinking, which actually I think ties in really well with your prior podcast episode with Mr. Westermeyer that was talking about critical thinking. So it's a five-step process. You have to go in order. You can't skip to step three. You have to start with step one, which is make the requirements less dumb. That's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying that we need to be challenging the constraints that we're given and questioning the rationale of things that, that we're told. So don't just accept requirements just because they come from someone who might be smarter or higher ranking. If it doesn't make sense to you, continue to question it until you have something that does. Then you can move on to step two, which is delete the part of process. I feel like that step is pretty self-explanatory, but you're essentially moving anything, removing anything that's not necessary to achieve your out, your your stated goal. So don't add things in just in case. 
Uh, I think we do that a lot in the government. And this step really speaks to me a lot as, as far as the requirements development process goes, because I think it's very applicable to our recurring acquisitions, you know, those acquisitions that we're procuring over and over and over again, because it can be easy for us to fall into that copy and paste mentality when we're developing those requirements. So over time, we're adding in more things, but we don't often come together as a team to take a hard look at what we can take out, what we can reduce, or what we can replace. So then you go on to the other steps. You really don't go on to steps three, four, and five until you've fully exhausted those first two steps. And the last steps are simplify, accelerate, and automate. So there's a really good quote from Elon Musk where he says, the most common mistake a smart engineer can make is to optimize something that shouldn't exist. And I think that really in one sentence sums up the intent of the algorithm. Yeah. So kind of going off of what you were just discussing, I mean, it sounds like that acquisition, you know, planning process is super important, right? I mean, we could, we know that, but really those first two steps dive into asking questions about the requirement that you're actually being given or that you're trying to buy. Um, and then really focusing on what's necessary. So how do you, how do you see teams kind of executing that? I think, you know, at SpaceX, I saw it happening very organically because the algorithm is just so deeply ingrained in their culture that you'll hear people in meetings say like, well, you know, can you delete the part or process or, you know, uh, they'll throw out parts of the algorithm or they'll, or they'll literally say run the algorithm on it. So I think it's something that teams can implement at any level. And it doesn't necessarily have to be at the beginning of an acquisition, you know, it, it can be your contract is in performance and you're noticing there are issues. Maybe it's time to run the algorithm on the requirements at that point and see what can be optimized mid mid performance. I really, really was excited to have Heather share her I2I because I think it's so important and say that also like even in just my short experience in my current assignment, I've taken some of the things that I've learned from her and the process as she's explained it to us and been able to apply it to like simple buys, right? So I think what she's talking about is applicable, not just like in a big systems level, but even in our small operational type acquisitions that we do every day. So really, really cool stuff. Yeah. And thanks for throwing that in because I'm not going to edit it out. So <laughs> so please, I want you guys to jump in on this because you guys are seeing how what things are happening outside of you know what we're used to and how we do business in the government. And that's why you guys were sent where you were sent and now we're bringing it back. So please share how even something that you may have gotten from another fellow is helping you in your current role. I think that's awesome. And this is the stuff that the people listening need to hear, right? Because this is why you guys were sent was to bring back this knowledge and how people can use this and that you don't have to work at SpaceX to like question these type of things, right? That we can build a culture that we want, but everybody has to be active and understanding what, what we're doing and be intentional, right? Yeah, 100% agree. So with that, I'm going to go to you, Captain Bingley, on this next question. Uh, another topic that we discussed was investing in defense. From your perspective, working with venture capital firm 8VC, why is defense investing so hard? I boiled it down to kind of like three major-ish topics um, in my I2I, one being time, the second being the target market, and the third being collaboration. 
And when we talk about time, like the thing that you have to understand is that innovation does not run at the pace of government. Um, it runs so, so much faster. I used two 1020 software model to kind of illustrate that in my paper. And essentially what that means is like in the first cycle, you want to make uh, have a company return $2 million on in IRR and then, and then 10 and then 20 in these, in these kind of chunks of time. But we don't buy things fast enough to have our defense companies realize that kind of return. And we have things like SIBRs, but those things are not really necessarily seen by all venture capital firms as market signals that adhere to the growth that they're looking for. Other aspects of time are like the market size and regulatory challenges. We're in a CR right now. So I think one statistic I heard first introduced by Dr. LaPlante is that since 2011, a, a total cumulative, cumulative delay of four years has happened because of CRs. And that that really limits the pace of innovation even further, right? Because we can't start new things. We're really limited on what we can spend. And then also, it doesn't help the innovation run as fast as it could. The second thing I talked about was the target market is, is more than just the end user. And in, in that same talk, topic, I talked about how it's important for startups and VCs to kind of have a DC presence because there's a political aspect to doing this with the government but also that it's easy to waste time on people without authority or decision power within kind of our, our web or hierarchy of decision makers. I think SOCOM does a pretty good job of advertising who the decision makers are. But even for me, being inside the venture capital company, trying to connect, and I think, I think Alex would share this same sentiment, trying to connect these really, really innovative and cool companies, even just with an end user, when maybe our venture capital company wasn't doing any investment, we just saw something cool and we're like, somebody needs to know about this. It was really hard for us to find someone and to get a response from, from someone in the government when we're, all we're trying to do is make connections and help people understand that these cool, innovative things are out there. And that kind of leads into the last one, which is like collaboration. We do great things. Ms. Heidi Shu kind of advertises uh, what the problems that they're focused on. And, and you'll see that from other components and services. But the way we advertise it isn't being interpreted on the other side in actionable ways all of the time. And then so we get these well-intended solutions to the wrong problem, which kind of exacerbates our decline or uh, the distance between us and your peer competitors with innovative solutions to problem sets. So I think Focusing on a valuable exchange um, with clear articulated problems is something that we need to, to think about harder, even, even at the program manager contracting officer level. Like how are we how are we formulating these requirements and going back to to what Heather uh, talked about, make it less dumb, you know? And that when we do that, I think that venture capitalists are are better able to align their investments with innovation and then our needs in turn. But right now it's really hard for them to do that. And and I could talk about this for, for so much longer <laughs> and there's so much more intricacies involved in that, but that's kind of like the wave top issues that I saw with defense investment. 
just two cents, Amber. Um, I think from my point of view, too, I saw that uh, companies, they really have to be all in with government contracting, you know, and some of these government opportunities. From what I saw, a lot of the small startups is that a lot of them can't afford a dedicated team to attack government opportunities. And it really does not, there's not really much opportunity to win if, if they just assign one person to kind of look at things on the side and just just thinking that they can win a contract, even if it's something small and maybe uh, on the easier side, uh, just kind of doing it, you know, uh, part time. It's really hard to do that. And a lot of companies, um, we had a program where the company, the portfolio companies that had experience with government contracting would kind of mentor uh, less experienced companies. And their main message was that, hey, if you don't have those relationships with key government requirement owners where you can see uh, the requirements that will come before they get posted. If you don't, if you can't anticipate that and you're just searching sam.gov, you're already lost. Like th- there's so many companies out there that already know what's coming. They have it ready. They have their responses ready. My message is like, it's really hard to do it part-time and you have to be all in. And the companies that are kind of really all, all in after government contracts, they're the ones that really win. And it's, it sounds like on this, I think on the surface, it sounds like, well, you can just kind of, you know, take a look and, and see what's posted and kind of do your market research and see which opportunities you can you can um, go after. But it's really not that easy. And it takes a ton of resources. And from the VC's point of view of, you know, helping a lot of these companies succeed, obviously, because they've, they've been invested in, there's a kind of a, a stigma with government contracting is like, why is it worth the time? And a lot of times it's really it's truly really not because there's not funding or the, the company's not within the program of record. So they know there's not you know, the funding is going to be tough and, 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 and the cycle of, of, of winning a contract, you know, when, when, when they get told, Oh, you know, it can be a year. Like they can't wait a year. The startups really can't, can't hold on that long to kind of, and, and, and keep going back and forth, and, you know, putting a lot of resources to uh, communicate with the government. So it's, it's a tough, it's a tougher position where it's, yeah, I think it's really there's some there needs to be some kind of culture shift to kind of to show that government contracting is more startup friendly. Yeah, yeah. I 100% agree, Alex. And on top of that, you have a lot of venture capital firms that won't invest in startups unless they have a commercial market because they mm-hmm. know that you just cannot survive on government business. Mm-hmm. I also heard some as I was talking to different people in the government while I was in this experience, some hesitation of either program offices or contracting officers doing business with venture-backed firms or or venture-backed startups because their communication was that the board and the VC control the direction of this company. So if they just want to want them to change direction and focus on a different market, they can do that. And then they're less focused on our problems. Well, my, my counter to that is they have to do that to survive. They, they can't wait for us and they can't, they can't go on a promise of a contract. We just, we kind of have to be better buyers to help these innovative, innovative companies solve our problems. Yes, I think that's a great point that you both are kind of really hammering home here that I think it's helpful for the folks that are on the government side to understand this, right? Because if they've only if we've only been in this government world, we see our side of the story, right? But it it's hard to imagine what the other side is dealing with unless we're hearing, you know, these kinds of things. 
um, firsthand because that's really where their motivation is going to come from, right? And if they are going to be proposing and if they're going to be trying to work with us. So it kind of leads me to what can we do? And so just thinking of like even some of the basic things that a contract specialist or PCO can do at their level to really try to help bridge the gap in more collaboration. I think one way to do it is uh, is really being open to kind of maybe doing some coaching and kind of having the empathy empathy to understand from different sides, mm-hmm. you know, what the industry is looking for. If they're, for example, if they're not registered in SAM, maybe helping them through that process, giving them resources, talking to some of the resources that are available out there that can help new startups to do it. That's one way of, uh, I think it's important to see that because I know I've seen, I mean, personally, I've seen sometimes there's, RF, RFPs out there that are like, hey, if your formatting's wrong, you're you're disqualified. And it's like, the, some of the companies, you know, they're not used to that. And they might, you know, they really might not understand the weight of someone, you know, maybe cancel it there, uh, or disqualifying the proposal because the format's off or there's something, something smalls off, things like that. Yeah. And I mean, I did a stint was like a six week um, working with a startup in 2017, I think. And I and I had the experience of like they had updated the the RFP like several times within a matter of a couple of weeks. And so it was like these companies are not and they don't have the time to just monitor like one one RFP release. Right. Because they're looking at several different things. So even just something as, as simple as that can have an impact on the responses that you're going to get. I think a little bit on that too, Amber, is something that I heard from several companies is that we like to put out an RFP right before a holiday, you know, mm-hmm. and then and then have it do or have it do right after a holiday. So it's convenient for us. And I think I think maybe this simple things like paying closer attention to a calendar and understanding what we're doing to others is important. And then I, I think there's going to be people out there that don't agree with what I'm about to say next, but I think in the contracting world, we have this, we communicate a lot to people. Don't talk to contractors. That's my job. I'll talk to the contractors. Don't talk to them. And I think we need to be a little more careful about how we say that to other people, Mm -hmm. because I think we do want our requirement owners talking to contractors. Because that's what makes the collaboration happen. That's what makes the communication of the problem set happen. Sure, when it comes to the contracting piece and I've released an RFP and we're in that that acquisition cycle, yeah, then then it's in it's the ball's in my court as a contracting officer. But before that, let's talk and see what's in the realm of possible because if we're not really informed about what's in the realm of possible through talking to contractors, we can't really write a good requirement. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I I think we have to be a little bit more careful with how we say that to our, our mission partner base. Alicia, you're so right. And I think I took a lot away from my time in industry in looking at the relationship management side of it all, which I think we can tend to be very transactional and don't give as much focus to that relationship management and that communication before you even get to an RFP is so important. And I feel like sometimes we've put fear in everyone that they f- they're afraid to talk to contractors. So I think the traditional ways the uh, acquisition professionals are taught to communicate is through, like, like Alicia said, like industry days or like, you know, conferences or sending out RFIs. And I think through my EWE experience showed me that the acquisition professionals should uh, really feel free to reach out to 
venture, you know, tier at least the tier one, tier one venture capital firms in their journey of conducting, uh, you know, when they do their market research around our critical technology areas. And, uh, I think this way they can uh, gain a better understanding of the state of the market, who the key players are, what are the capabilities, who's getting funded, you know, what, which, which way is the money flowing, which technologies are being recognized, who, who are the leaders in the market, the venture capital, you know, like Kinto Capital or ABC, they're definitely open to helping the government learn the marketplace. And and these folks in venture capital, their whole mindset is all they do is market research. It's a huge, it's a huge effort. They put in uh, put in a lot of hours. A lot of them are experts in their certain domains. And I think these type of efforts will definitely shape their um, re- requirement and help government professionals, acquisition professionals, find the best commercial solutions to you know sol- solve our mission requirements. And I think even from my perspective, during my time at Intel Capital, you know, we ended up talking, you know, ha- opening up conversations with DIU, Ensign, AppWorks, software factories, and actually a combination of it will be at the Intel Capital Public uh, Sector um, Connect, which will be on November 14th in DC, where they're actually gonna try to connect, uh, you know, like 15 plus uh, portfolio companies showing kind of the mission, how these companies are delivering uh, relevant mission outcomes. So I think just having that, lowering that uh, barrier to really reaching out to some of these were venture capital firms where normally you would think, well, they, they're not going to have time for me. Why would they talk to me? Why would they help me with market research? But they're, I think just from working there, they really do. It's, it's kind of in, in their interest as well to really connect the government customers and you know this government market public sector market to the that startup and, to, and, and industry so i think that's very interesting i just wanted to pull the thread on that a little bit so if i was like a contract specialist or pco sitting out you know in my organization right now and i heard what you just said how could i start doing that like how would how would that what would that look like just as a, an example and you don't have to you know go into all the details but i'm just curious like as an example so one example, I think uh, a lot of people are on LinkedIn, right, these days. And so I'm on LinkedIn and sometimes I just kind of scroll through and sometimes I see a post about some kind of technology or some kind of news story that's being shared. And I, you know, it's, it's something interesting, right? Maybe from someone that I'm not even connected to. And just having that kind of like, if you're curious and if it's something maybe relevant to what you do, relevant to your program, honestly, just sending this, uh, you know, this person a message or, or, or if you're doing your Google searches and you're looking up some kind of technology that a program that you got put on that you're not sure, which a lot of them are so complicated, it's, it's really hard to wrap your mind around that. And you're doing your Google searches and maybe, like I said, maybe include like, hey, venture cap, which venture capital firms invest in this stuff? And then you can, you know, you can find the contacts that are, you know, work with those venture capital firms and, and see who the investors are. And, and, you know, a lot of them really, they're very open because venture capital industry is is all about relationship management. So they have their contacts out there. And I mean, literally just emailing these folks and saying, hey, I'm, I'm this is what I do. This is what I'm interested in. Could you, you know, could you, c- can we have a conversation? Can we have like a short intro? Just like, I'm just curious. I, I, w- I would like to learn about this. And, uh, you know, I have this requirement, something that we were, or something that more, my organization is working on. And honestly, I think, a lot of times they would definitely be open to talking and explaining kind of what they do be and, and sharing their knowledge 
and their domain, uh, you know, expertise and what, what, what you're trying to learn. And then that, that was my biggest kind of my eye-opening thing, because to me, venture capital was kind of a closed industry. It's very small and they manage a lot of money. They don't have time for anybody. But it's really not. the. I mean, just work at least working with, with my with my team. It was definitely not the case. I mean, we talked to so many customers and connected so many government acquisition professionals. That was it was really eye opening. I think as well for contracting specialists and contracting officers, it's important for you to become like an expert in whatever you're buying to a certain extent. So if you're working in an infrastructure support flight, do you know the market trends? Like, is there higher inflation in some of the inputs? What materials are hard to get in your area? Those kind of things can help you better communicate with industry because when they come to you and ask for you know, a request for equitable adjustment, you'll already know the background of, of what's going on there and you're going to be able to communicate more openly with them. Couldn't, couldn't agree with more. Um, I, I will provide a different perspective to some of the stuff that Alex said, having come from like a smaller BC, they have a lot of money, um, but not a lot of people. Right. So time is very valuable. Definitely say, yeah, try to reach out to them. And if you get a response, great. But if you don't, don't think that they don't care about you. Um, it's just that they don't have a whole lot of people sometimes to dedicate to, to all the different inputs that they're receiving. Most of my time was spent uh, hearing pitches from companies and, and they have people doing that all day, every day. But I will kind of answer one of your other questions and this question saying that as a career field, what we could do better is advertising who is out there in the industry right now that's actually an Air Force employee. Who are our current EB fellows and where are they and what are they doing? And could they be a resource for me? Who's been out there in the past? Who's out there with some of the other programs that are available through the DOD to be in industry? And, and what are those like even internal connections that I can make that could actually be a pretty big easy button? So is that out there somewhere on Air Force Contracting Central? And if not, then maybe we're going to get that on there. By the end yeah. of this. <laughs> maybe maybe we just um, walked ourselves into a tap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no, I think that's a great point, right? Because as people are out there doing this work and they're like, well, okay, this sounds great. So how do I actually do this, right? And so I think you guys did a great job of kind of explaining some things that they need to consider. But also it always helps to talk to somebody, right? Um, so if they can call one of you up or one of the folks that were previous EWE fellows or people that are out there right now doing it. Now we did kind of touch on this question already, but I want to offer it up just in case there's anything we want to hammer home from anything we just said, or if there's anything different. Um, so Captain Bakuda, how should acquisition professionals think about the way that they communicate with industry? Just reaching out, creating relationships. Um, I think that's really the one thing that like the, the biggest thing I've learned from VCs is just the amount of relationship creation and intros and maintaining those relationships with with, with different people, finding different, you know, really getting different perspectives from all over the field, you know, from startups, from well-established companies where, you know, just anybody in the domain is so important and it really pays dividends down the line to, you know, especially if you're working with new technologies, you know, something cutting edge or, or, or you're trying to solve a problem where you're really not exactly the expert and maybe your experts are struggling to, you know, you know, us as a, uh, contracting um, career field, a, a lot of times we're really the connection creators, connection makers. So I think 
the this VC experience, EWE experience uh, really hammers that home. And and I definitely advocate anybody that wants to do EWE, it's absolutely uh, worth the time. It's an amazing program for sure. And uh, I, I know I wanted to do it for a long time and I finally got to do it. But everybody has different kind of a different experience for sure, depending on the company. But my time was great. I think it's totally worth uh, anyone's time that would like to do it. And if they're if people are not able to actually do the education with industry experience, you can also just flip try to flip on that brain thinking how you would have to if you were in that position, right? Because right now we we're used to what we're used to. But if you were in that position, if you were on the other, you know, one of our industry partners and you were working with them, what do you what would they be thinking about? What would they care about? I mean, you could probably Google a lot of this stuff too, but you guys have talked about a lot of it here, right? And so like in knowing what, and that's in dealing with anybody, right? Is what do people care about? If you're doing business with somebody, if you're in any kind of relationship with somebody, what do people care about? Because that's what you need to know in order to really make that collaboration work. So I want to go back around to each of you and Heather, we'll start with you and then we'll go to Captain Bingley and then Captain Bakuda. So what were your top two takeaways from your education with industry experience with your company? My number one takeaway was never stop asking why. Going back to the algorithm in that first step, never stop asking why. I think the longer we're in this career field, it, it might be natural for us to stop questioning the why behind what we're doing or the why behind a particular process. But it's so important to constantly stop and question that. Not not just for our newer copper caps and new military coming in, but but as seasoned professionals, we need to we need to be doing that more often. And then the other one is make the time to celebrate your successes, both large and small. This is something that I observed at SpaceX that was just really incredible. You know, not letting even the smaller milestones that you're achieving go by without acknowledging them in some way. It's so important to continue to motivate yourself and again remind yourself why you're doing what you're doing. Heather, just full of knowledge bombs. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> I think my top two takeaways, I, I've said this to quite a few people and it it never kind of stops to strike me. I came into this experience, to be honest, a little bit a little bit jaded about like the amounts of money that flow in our economy and capitalism in general. And you know, I felt like everybody was in it for the money. But something very important that I learned in my VC experience is that there's a lot of different ways to be patriotic and show your patriotism and and be invested in the defense market. And I wouldn't take for granted anybody out there in the VC world who's trying to invest in defense because it is just so incredibly hard. I can't emphasize that enough. And then one of the second things that I, one of the other big things I learned is don't, don't be afraid of the relationships. We kind of already talked quite a bit about that, but I, for me, that was super important to learn um, and to witness firsthand that we shouldn't be afraid of it. We shouldn't teach other people to be afraid of it. And we could, we, there's ways for us to embrace it, stay within our left and right bounds, and then in turn, just improve our solutions to the problem sets that we're working on. Great. Thank you, Alex. 
Yeah, I think the two things for me, I think first one, just going off what Heather said, I just want to, I wanted to share this, but I think this would just be an example of kind of Heather already said, just recognizing people and uh, within Intel Capital, there'll be a staff meeting every week. And and one of the first uh, kind of a bullet points in the staff meeting is like, hey, does anybody want to recognize anyone else on, on the team? And I thought that was really great because a lot of times, you know, we collaborate with each other. A lot of times that kind of goes, you know, it's just part of the work, but the the team uh the team I worked with really uh took 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 the time to kind of uh, you know recognize each other so hey this this person I worked with on this project we you know we got the deal done because we you know we worked together and, and it was really kind of a cool uh, kind of reputable process that really showed kind of some gratitude and you know every single pretty much every single week that was really I thought that was really cool and then um, the second thing is just uh, I think just market research. I think we <laughs> I know I know in contracting world we, we get taught hey market research is is constant <laughs> it's it's always happening but I think really taking that sharing that with our community of in our IPTs with engineers with, with program managers and and find showing different ways we can do that and learning our systems, trying to really understand what we're buying is really important. And I know it's, again, I think it's a lot of the stuff is super complicated. A lot of the stuff is way in the future, but I think uh, having those ways to resource this stuff and, and share that with the teams and and bring some perspective, not just kind of a contracting perspective, is, is just, I think it's really important. And I think it really elevates, you know, the whole team, everybody you work with. Well, I want to thank you all for being on the podcast today. This, So we were talking about this beforehand, but I was trying to think through all the podcast episodes that I've recorded on this podcast. And I think this is the first one where we have folks that are outside the continental US, US while we are recording. So I just wanted to say thank you for everybody calling into this and, and being able to make time for it because um, we're all kind of in different time zones and all of that. And I also wanted to, you know, there was a, you guys shared a lot of great information here and really things that kind of can give the folks listening a different perspective on, you know, their daily jobs and their daily lives and what they're doing. And so I challenged every I challenge everybody that's listening to this to just find one thing in here that you heard that kind of stuck with you and try to take action on that, whether it's like learning more about it or doing some market research or reaching out to a firm to get more information or whatever that is for you. I I encourage you to do that. And then listen to this episode again, and you'll probably find another good nugget that you that is helpful for you. But I want to thank Captain Bakuda, Captain Bingley, and Heather for, for calling into this and sharing your experience. Absolutely. It was a blast. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much, Amber. It was amazing. Thank you. Thanks, Amber. And Alicia for setting this up. Yeah. I can't miss an opportunity to have you drop bombs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Rock star. All around. <laughs> If you have suggestions for topics or people to interview or feedback on the podcast, you can submit those at thecontractingexperience at gmail.com. I want to thank you all for listening to the Contracting Experience podcast. Until next time, keep connecting to the world around you.